0: Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On tonight's podcast, I interview Christopher Harrison, Ph.D., a professor of political science and a working class academic. Chris lives in Flagstaff, Arizona, where he works as an instructor for Northern Arizona University. He's also the author of a book called Genocidal Conscription, Drafting Victims and Perpetrators Under the Guise of War it's in bookstores now and i want to apologize as well for the poor audio quality in the first 20 or so minutes of the podcast but i assure you things get better so anyways let's get on with it Welcome to the podcast. I'm bringing on Christopher Harrison, chris PhD Instructor of Political Science at Northern Arizona University. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Ben Senior. Appreciate you taking the time to speak to me.
0: So, a lot of a lot of areas we talked to on the pre-call. Um, where would you like to start? I did want to bring up the Flagstaff, is that where that's where uh Northern Arizona University is. It's one of my favorite cities in the country. Beautiful uh beautiful city that drove through didn't spend much time there, but great weather. Uh it's it's a it's an awesome town out there. I hope you like it out there.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the country. So we're about uh, like 30 40 miles off the Grand Canyon here, Northern Arizona. I've been in the town for about 8 years now and uh it it has always caught me every time uh to go out in the community because when you hear the word arizona the the thing that brings your mind is the desert the border and of course that's a part of the state but in the north here uh this is um a town that is on a set of mountains and is in the midst of one of the largest continuous parks in the u.s so it's a mountain town and we get snow, we get the um, sun—a beautiful place. And a lot of tourists come to. Them.
0: I've had some friends out there. I never snowboarded out there, but I've had some friends that snowboarded and some other outdoorsy people hiking and all that kind of stuff. Are you outdoorsy? Are you into snowboarding and uh, hiking and whatnot?
1: Well, I'm. I'm not so much into the snowboarding. Uh, I do like the outdoors. I am a recent recruit of sorts into. Uh, going out and uh, hunting for your own food. So wow. I, I'm a, a total novice on it. I'm originally yeah. from Britain where yeah, such things are very, very rare. You have <laughs> to have an estate and, you know, your own private stock of life, animals to go and hunt for things, the UK, essentially. Um, so it's kind of like the, the, the food is uh, the aristocrats when you go and hunt for the That's yeah. the wonderful thing. And um, so very new, very much learning my... Uh, there's safety element in terms of the defendant, but not, you know, not not too bad of that. I haven't yet got anything um, to really project my uh, license to go
0: out. So, you're from, uh, you're a Brit, you're from England. Uh, that's kind of where you're born and raised, is that right?
1: Yeah, a little bit of uh, the Irish too. So I lived in Ireland Philip, a bit as a kid, and then I uh, essentially I wanted to leave the United Kingdom with a class structure there, since I was, before I was even a teenager, I wanted to get out. So um, long story short, I ended up teaching English as foreign language and then traveled to look at Thailand, and uh, then uh, migrated to the U.S. something around 15, 15 years ago. So that's like citizen now,
0: um do you notice so i want to get into i mean i like politics that's my kind of favorite subject matter before we start going deep into the book and stuff but um what about the british politics um versus u.s politics um it seems like um u.s uh and 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 england are pretty aligned um you know they kind of go go together a lot on uh you know, foreign policy and wars and all that kind of stuff. Um, what, what's the kind of – What's is there a lot of similarities between U.S. politics and um, British politics, and uh, what's going on with Brexit? Do you have any insight on that?
1: Yeah, of course, right. I mean, Brexit is a big issue. Uh, I'll get to that in a little bit. In terms of the comparison or the similarities between U.S. and U.K., I mean we all know British American colonies back in the day when it's very them that it ended up being the United States in the former, uh, formation. But it was thirteen and thirty seven British American territories. So the British have been in the Americas, uh, you could argue longer than the Americans, if you like, the US Americans. Um, in terms of the, the similarities, it's about it's about land, it's about resources, you know, it's about being able to be, uh, take advantage of the opportunities and, and make it both maybe you sustain generational wealth. And we've seen that in terms of how the US is developed since it's earlier years The public on the east coast and then expanded westward. Um uh, but, but in terms of the class situation the, there are big differences, you know I, I, the way I like to kind of explain the biggest difference is the political risks that have come about because of how challenging American established political dynasties. Well, think of political dynasties five 500 years before. Now you, you're talking about the UK. You're talking about such tremendous amounts of wealth and power um, that everyone else is from the legacy and what will likely be a, a, an ongoing focus of power. power. But if, you, if you're not in the in crowd, if you're in the outreach, uh and especially you know my I sat down for a lot of my family out there. Uh you you do, you know, the kind of the the lower run or not even in the society structure of uh you know people up organization you know making a buck and having property, Like right? The idea of having a car, having a house, having an education, it's tricky, it's tough. Certainly not gonna be handed to you in the US. But in Britain you have to essentially know something. You have to be able to have highest uh, for people in the community um, that will vouch for and that goes into even how you get a passport, how you get shopping, how you get uh, loans, uh, finance for your college degree, if you benefit that way. Um, and so, there's a lot of people still even today in Britain who are just entirely outside of the system. And that's something that's become more prominent in the U.S. in recent years. In terms of people who are just, uh, considered expendable, right? And they get pushed out and they're left to defend for themselves.
0: The superfluous, I've talked about this a lot, the superfluous, right, the, 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 yeah. the people that don't contribute to um, production, you know, the capitalist system, the people without expendable, um, you know, the people that are expendable and the people without maybe disposable income, the people that can't um, afford luxury goods, probably the people that are just trying to get by. You know, those are those are superfluous. And that's why. And that's kind of my next question and my lead in, because I've talked to in an, uh, other solo podcasts that I'm working on, especially right now, that the United States is a prison state. It leads the world in prison um, population and also incarceration rate um, and by wide margin. And as the welfare um, state and the welfare system continues to be attacked, um, both from the left and the right, uh, I mean, we have two business parties in the United States. Uh, I know you have a labor party, a more class-based party uh, in England, at least from my understanding, uh, but at least from the way I see American politics, we have two business parties, you know, uh, and basically, you know, they're not too they're not too dissimilar. You know, the only thing that, um, you know, differs is maybe what, what corporate funding they get, you know, tends to be like more of the financial sector funds, the Democrats and, you know, big oil funds, Republicans, and maybe the Republicans talk a little bit more about uh, abortion and they pretend to be uh, religious to get uh, to, to buy elections. But the prison industrial complex, uh, private prisons, they can even sue local and state governments if occupancy rates uh, aren't met. Um, and that's kind of what, uh, as the welfare system continues to crumble and as the, as the safety nets in our society continue to, you know, whittle away, that's where a lot of the most vulnerable people in society are, are put. They're put in prison because there's nowhere else for them to go.
1: Well you you, you sparked a memory from uh, you know the grad student thinking of the work from co this idea of uh, the prison society. Um this guy he was a French philosopher so it's also convoluted, it's not the best for reading I would argue but um it's a it's a fair point, right? The, the establishment of the state and the government who are in the with type of cooperation and incorporation. Uh and, and human beings become uh a problem with them, right? So it's right. not all not all that um surprising that you're, you're gonna see those types of developments for of succeeding. I do want to say though it is it, interesting I was um it's it's something of a cancelled dollar actually in the Delta because in very recent years it is. um He's references for partners who are sometimes not all that consensual and sometimes very underage. Um, so he's, he's this French philosopher from the 60s who very much almost a kind of European equivalent to um He's still put out there, even in the midst of new freedoms and things like that. Um, so problems with him sometimes, even now looking at his work, this, this kind of projection of their psychology is very very close Now it's not to say that there aren't abuses, there aren't these problems, of course there's many there's many ways that people take advantage of economy off of other human beings. Um the, the problem I would suppose is that you've got to maybe take account of who's the client at the state. right? Like, who, who's the, the taxpayer. They are they're gonna do whatever they're gonna do. To make sure that they're able to build wealth, build property, pass it onto their offspring. You know, that that's that's as old as any civilization settlement is, that process. So we've got we've got to a point where there's no more space to go concrete, there's no more new places to go colonies. And, and that's where we we're kind of stack our heads because of the kind of then the globally, international site. Where else do we go, right? And it's even led to these somewhat, uh, ambitious think I do, take the resources from another planet, or you know, somewhere some in the community this is right. So the, the carcerel or the person of society is, it's, it, it's very common in the theater of the science. A lot of people in 30th of look at this place that way. They're not, even though they study uh, politics, it's often a review of kind of a cancer, some kind of illness, yeah. in terms of government work so, so, trying to figure out what else people could do to avoid getting taking advantage of them is a lot of the work actually. Like self as a college feature to just give younger people some hope that they can actually go do something about it with themselves and their lives. Um yeah. and, and often it is find you know, find what you like, go enjoy the outdoors. Go spend time in new parts of the world for what there is. And then once you figure out, okay, I don't necessarily want to be a fundraiser for authorities or concede or whatever the thing might it could well be okay, well actually said i to hang out, you know, on the beach or up on the mountains and you know it, it is it on the on the surface it looks like people are checking out. But actually it's much, much more uh almost a kind of moral conviction to enjoy oneself and live a good life with others around you and benefit them as well with your practice it's kind of like local politics i guess right? how are you going to defeat a corporation right of billions of dollars in an arsenal or a state government whose job is to take out competitors over and over again very successfully so with many of the American, American government for a while there You know, warfare is a business. And if it means that there are the prisoners of war who become the the purpose, you know, well, that's the rule of the game. So often, uh, the the message to give to people listening is figure out how not to get tied up in terms of becoming some uh, proxy tool of a deeply Immoral uh, for um, and it's not the easiest thing to do. And the, the flip side would be: could there be a way of politics? Could there be a party? Could there be some representation uh, that doesn't just be, uh, profit ahead of people? Um, so, it's pretty exceptional idea, you, can, you, know, to you about it. I,
0: and I think you kind of touched on some things, though, about you know, kind of being outside uh enjoying nature which i think is awesome you know and i think in the um just you know kind of the fast paced society that at least i find myself living in uh and having lived in some of the bigger cities on the east coast just seems like it's go 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 all the time uh just getting some time to enjoy nature uh to enjoy friends and family i think that's what it's all about you know connect with people hopefully with shared interests and that kind of stuff and you had said you know maybe doing some hunting to um you know, just just to kind of to live off the land, you know, maybe even just for a short period of time, but maybe to kind of to go to get back to <laughs> maybe a more simpler uh, time. And I've read some I think it's called the people's you consider yourself um, a working class academic, as we we kind of discussed at the uh On the pre-call, and I definitely consider myself, um, I got some degrees and all that kind of stuff, but I definitely consider myself a working class guy, for sure. I'm a working class guy, um, and I I identify with the left, I identify, identify with the underdog, I identify with working people around the globe who are oppressed, I identify with people that... Fighting the wars, not the people that decide, you know, what what the war is going to be about. But I think some of the themes that I'm kind of noticing, I've read the people's history of the world. I, f- I forget the author. I don't have it on the bookshelf right next to me. But talked about primitive communism, uh, not communism of the Soviet Union, which I am not a fan of. I'm an anarchist and I've had some Marxists and maybe even some communists on my podcast. And I'm very critical of the Soviet Union, but I'm also critical of the United States because it's the country I live in. And also the only country that I can influence its policy uh, because I'm a citizen. But I think you're talking about maybe some stuff, primitive communism, you know, uh, the way societies were before we had these big cities and nation states that we currently have. And then the other theme that had come to mind that I'm writing down when you were talking, just listening to some of the things you said, anarcho-communism is kind of like a a government model uh, about loosely affiliated communities and maybe... Federations, uh, loosely uh, connected throughout the world, with no um, nation state, like not not a republic or not a nation state, and certainly not a world government. And then my favorite political philosophy is anarcho syndicalism, that is a basically a loosely affiliated society where um, everything is democratically organized around the workplace. Um, we don't have these nation states or these centralized power centers like the soviet union like china like the united states with standing armies and nuclear missiles and all that kind of stuff um weapons of mass destruction but more so a society organized um just working people democratically organized and i also believe um in a classless society i think I think uh, war um, typically brings out class lines and divides. Usually it seems like the poor are the ones that fight in the wars. It's usually the most vulnerable people in society that fight in the wars. Uh, I think if we have maybe had a more democratically organized society without so much class division, um, especially society that's run by elites. You know, I like like that terminology, not that I think they're better than us, but basically a group of people that, um, you know, a fraction of the 1% that own all the corporations, which basically, you know, run the government. You know, um, I I always quote this Princeton study uh, of 2014 that said that the United States is not a um, democracy that is an oligarchy, and about 70% of the... um, People of the United States, citizens, uh, have no say in any government policy. They're basically, um, uh, what's the word for it, where you're not allowed to, they're uh, marginalized essentially is what I'm, disenfranchised, that's the word I was looking for. They're basically disenfranchised and the higher you go up the income scale, the more you have a say in politics and, and the way you know policies are developed in Washington and the people at the top of that income scale, the Elon Musks, the Jeff Bezos, the Bill Gates, those type of people get pretty much anything they want. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of when, when I was hearing you talk about maybe some getting outdoors and, and enjoying some of the simpler things of life. Uh, I think that that's kind of how maybe societies were um, thousands of years ago. Not saying we have to go – um, back to eating and, and, you know, killing your own food and stuff like that. Um, but I definitely think locally grown and locally harvested food is, is definitely the way to be. Um, and I don't, I don't like a society run by giant nation states and transnational corporations. I'd like a little bit more democratically organized local society um, that's a lot more peaceful than the violent world that I've been... Uh, uh living in since I was born basically. You know, I guess I was born right around the time the Soviet Union fell. Um and uh yeah I guess uh <laughs> that was a from the nineteen fifties until the to the Soviet Union finally fell that was a that was a world world constantly on the verge of nuclear war, a scary place.
2: Excellent. Yeah I mean
0: I gotta say the idea of the small
2: communes I think it it is gonna come down to human nature. Often you're gonna have things that work, you're gonna have communities that can function, people that are pulling their weight. But I've also heard enough stories uh, and anecdotes where things just go off track and you do need some impartial, official, bureaucratic professional to step in. Now, I wish they wouldn't necessarily step in as much as they do, Right. There's, there's this battle in politics of always making sure you get the best outcome that you can. It doesn't mean it's going to be the best and it's going to be utopia. Uh, it's a trade off. But, you know, there's there's myths of Californian communes in the 60s where people would be running it very well. They'd even have kids. They'd be creating families. They'd be intergenerational offspring. They'd sustain this wonderful uh, living off the land and pulling one's own weight to sustain Uh, an ethical lifestyle as a community in the anarcho commune type of style but then once things get too big once there's too many people then uh, i forget the name of the forum it was a famous forum uh, in california uh what happened is over time they had to build more permanent structures and as soon as they needed to bring in Young men who were the periphery family members of the commune leaders, they ended up uh, building the the houses, getting everything sorted out, and the uh, community was vegan. They were, um, I shouldn't actually say totally vegan, most of them were vegan. Some of them, the very few that did have animal pro- uh, products, they were using uh, one cow for milk. And so you can kind of get where this story is going. The laborers got hungry one day and had a barbecue. And within a week, the thing was done because it caused such outrage. No one knew how to get on with each other anymore. And so this thing that had been going on for two, three years, there were little kids born there, it collapsed very quick quickly. And the the challenge that we see with a lot of these communities is, can there be a standard upheld? can you roll with the punches? Is there a way to change and mitigate when things don't go so well? Is there a process that you can have people come in and take it and change it and be okay with the change? Because, um, you know, another one, you you kind of sparked in my mind here in Flagstaff, there was, I don't know how they're doing now, but, you know, this is about maybe six, seven years ago now, maybe longer. I heard of a group who were setting up uh on um private land so first you needed a private land donor so that's not cheap that that takes resources that takes material gain to be able to purchase land but they were doing it and what they're doing was building mud hats building uh mud huts from scratch as their accommodations they were putting everything in by hand to have a commune in in no electricity like it was literally like the middle ages in this uh this concept and it took about three months or so for me to figure out the person running it was uh selling these um crafts these artistic pieces um that were built from pieces of the land and it was you know some uh very unique forms of artwork used, but they were selling them to the, the bourgeoisie in town, the, the upper middle class, to support them. And it, it took another week or two for me to figure out, and I, they didn't, I didn't figure anything out. They told me how were they able to go about putting out so many pieces because it was one person selling these pieces. They were hiring a workshop in Mexico for pennies on the dollar. Right, so even the most uh, well-intentioned communes, what we get is a, a lack of leadership, a, 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 an issue in terms of integrity and credibility at some point down the road. And what happens when we see that? That's the big challenge that we have in terms of figuring out a sustainable global uh, economic system where we're not wasting lives or materials but we're also okay with having to let go and have other people step in and take over when it's their time uh and and be you know realistic about what the opportunities are right so brexit you mentioned brexit yeah that's a big one that that is still there are some un uh, unfinished problems in terms of how the europeans have treated british people for over a hundred years, and it does tie into the world wars in particular. Uh, the way that the French dismiss the British constantly is an in, an in, in interesting dynamic, right? And the the argument from the French side is, well, the Brits they're island people; they don't know what it means to get on with a neighbour that could go and conquer your capital at any point, right? You have to have ways and means to get on with each other, even if. They are a genocidal regime for a number of years next door, Uh, and that's that's the outlook. Even if it is working with uh, the people that you know a year ago were in uniform committing atrocities, you go do it. You figure out ways. So that's not an over over, uh, you know uh, exaggeration either. That's literally what had to happen in the late 1940s and 50s in Europe, and that's the birth of the European Union. And so. The British have essentially been isolated off in their islands, not really knowing all of these back and fros and the the deals that needed to be done just so that they wouldn't go and start tearing each other's throats out again. And specifically the French and the Germans that have done it for 250 years at this point. And so the, the European Union, fantastic idea, not that much to do with Britain particularly. And so uh, – and, and indeed, you could even go to Winston Churchill, leader of the UK led the British and parts of the Allied forces to victory. And so uh, over Nazi Germany, he came up with this idea. How, how about you just get on? How about you figure out ways in which you can trade or whatever it needs to be where you're not constantly tearing each other apart and burning half of the continent to the ground? Uh, and that's a pretty good idea, right? So the European Union works for a lot of people, but for the British, for many of the British, it is a thing that they would be, like, like to be a part of I definitely would have liked to have had greater access to parts of Europe when I lived there, but I didn't. And um, it it was more so for the people that could invest in different parts of the European economies, more so than for working-class Britons. So not that surprising that when they got the choice to say, you know what, actually we kind of like maybe bringing up our international relations with Commonwealth, the former imperial uh, countries you know I, I previously have gone to different parts of the world that have really really good relations with the united kingdom back from its imperial days and it, it obviously tremendous amounts of uh oppression in india as being the the big exception the big point you know issue to talk about but a lot of the people that were from the empire are very happy to be still in good relations with the united kingdom and um and the reason the we did touch on a little bit the idea of communes communities that work it's decentralized it's not always going to be one dictate tells you how life will be that is actually a pretty uh, common standard in british relations and in international relations connected to Britain. It's not uh very much what we've seen over and over again on continental Europe, which is you've got an elite class, they're very often aristocracy, if they're not, that they're trained to take over the levers of power and government, and it's a conveyor belt. And you can see that in certain aspects of how DC works here in the United States in terms it's a conveyor belt. Whose turn is it gonna be next? It's not who's best for the job. It's just who's who's served their time in the system, who's pulled enough levers and strings and scratched enough backs to know how the system works. <laughs> yeah, and then it's their time, right? Their that's that's what, that's what gets
0: us Joe Biden, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, a career. He's uh, been there for
2: fifty years, right, right? right? If you know what, if you need someone to run the operation when no one really else knows how big and complicated. A set of systems. It is right. It's, it's more than one government. I think we've got like, I think if you take, it, then you've got the federal government. You've got each of the states are their own governments. That's fifty-one already. You've got local municipalities. They have governments too. There's approximately ten thousand of them. You've got uh, federally recognized tribal governments. Another five hundred and sixty or so of them. So you're already up to the tr- like it's just a giant mess of decentralized uh, administrations constantly battling for battling for power.
0: Yeah, I think they're battle- they're all battling each other for power and not really you know working together. Go ahead. The highest level, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to say so. I wrote down a lot of stuff. I- I'm definitely in favor of decentralization. I don't want I don't want elites. Uh, I don't want leaders. What I want is working class political representatives. What I want is real working class representation. I want uh, political representatives that um, speak for me in Washington or speak for me at the state capitol or even in my local community. And I think that um, if we we want a truly democratic society, um, I think we should share responsibility. There shouldn't be... The citizens united and all this kind of money in politics. I think that's just. I think it's just terrible. From what I know about Britain and Europe, I don't know if it's changed, but some of the things that I've I've read is like for for example, like I think it's seven billion dollars. Um, I think it was fourteen billion dollars spent on the presidential campaign of twenty twenty in the United States. So I just split it in half. You know, seven million or seven billion. Uh, a piece to run for president. I don't have that kind of cheese sitting around. I don't have any friends with that kind of money. So I'm already out like, uh, you you know, that sort of thing. Um, But I think like in Britain and Europe, from my understanding, there's like public access television and political candidates get free spots, free ads, uh, you know, 30 minutes to talk about maybe their political platform and that kind of stuff. In the United States, you have to buy your time. You have to buy ads. And again, it's like $7 billion. So, I think if we had like a a free press where political candidates and it doesn't even have to be at the presidential or national level, federal level, it could be, um, you know, local local spots um, for city council or or whatever. I think that it's important to have. So these these television networks and all that kind of stuff, they have enormous rights, you know, and they basically sometimes indoctrinate us, propagandize us and teach us what to believe. Uh, If we had rural working class. Uh, organization and democratic uh, participation in, the, in in TV and news and media, I think we'd have a whole lot different government. And I think if we got the politics out or the money out of politics, we'd have something that is a little bit more closely resembling a democracy, which is what uh, America in theory was founded on. And I've talked about this in other podcasts um, that I've done, but yeah, in, in the United States, it was a landed aristocracy of rich white property owning males um, that was what American democracy was founded on that 's not much of a democracy if you were a black uh slave um if you were an indigenous native American, if you were a woman um that 's not much of a democracy and obviously um we 've pushed democracy, especially the civil rights era uh, of the nineteen sixties and i don 't think it ever ended where you know, we got, we got the country got a lot more civilized, um, and the franchise was pushed. Now women can vote, and, um, you know, blacks are, uh, they, they can vote, and they're not considered three-fifths uh, a person anymore like they were at the founding of the country. That's ridiculous. Uh, again, Native Americans, and we're even, I mean, we've broken pretty much any treaty that the United States has broken, pretty much any treaty that we've signed with the Natives, and I think um, you know, we're starting to finally recognize some of their tribal nations and tribal governments. I think that's a good thing. Um, one thing I will say though, is I think, um, the EU is like a, a super national political structure. Um, and I think it has some pros and cons. I think the cons are, there's a lot of money in the, in the leadership there. I think it's, uh, the trikas and the banks. Uh, I, I've read a lot by, um, Thomas Piketty, uh, French economist, uh, seems like he's a leftist economist, um, and he's very, very critical of the the banking system and the tricas who essentially set policy in the eu One thing that I like about the United States is in our system of government solidarity is solidarity is built into it, so like for example, Hawaii right now in the in the wildfires, natural disaster um, which is um, ravaging that state right now. We're going to take care of them, you know, in the state that I live in, in the state that you live in. I mean, there's a federal pool of money that we're going to send to Hawaii to help them out. And when there's a natural disaster in Florida or North Carolina or Wyoming or wherever, uh, Hawaii is going to contribute to that. But in the e- EU system, um, what you get is austerity, and you get insane interest rates, like with the Greek financial crisis, where, um, you know, and even I think Germany going back to World War One, and one of the reasons that maybe World War Two was fought, at least what some people say, is because of the very, very harsh economic sanctions or economic penalties, and basically the 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 burden of World War I was put on Germany, which destroyed their economy um which i you know I think there's a number of different reasons that you know to to talk about the origins of World War one and World War two and that's you know kind of the uh you know where where your wheelhouse is and with your um you know with your uh thesis and all that stuff but um yeah I think that uh I think that ultimately. Democracy, Like, the people are going to get it wrong sometimes, okay? The people are definitely going to get it wrong sometimes, but I think they get it right a lot more often than the leaders and the elites running these global societies that are are sometimes psychopathic or at least bordering on it. Uh, Aristotle, and, and I think it always boils down to the ancient Greeks, and I think they kind of got the game started with political um science political philosophy and i was kind of going to ask about you know what you consider yourself a historian a political philosopher a political scientist but i just want to set this up here too you know the the question of who's going to govern you know we still haven't necessarily decided that question very well i when i was first kind of radicalized to leftist politics i was like a big believer in direct democracy we'll vote on everything you know we'll, we'll decide everything well, I don't know if that's necessarily going to work in terms of like how many reams of paper we're going to have at city hall or what, what type of brand computers. I mean, we're we going to want to vote on all this stuff. Of course not. But one thing we never got to vote on was nucle- developing a nuclear bomb. I mean, that's a pretty big thing, right? And if the United States was a real democracy, perhaps there would have been some say on, you know, the weapons policy of, uh, in this country. I just talked about that last night with a physicist, um, but what Aristotle kind of set up and compared the different, um, styles of government, uh, whether it's, um, you know, a, uh, plutocracy or a monarchy, um, or an aristocracy, he tended to like democracy the best, but he did say there's a problem with democracy and, and Aristotle was an elite. He had power, privilege, and wealth at the time, and usually, uh, history is written by elites, uh. The you know the history books on war is usually written by the victors. But what Aristotle said of democracy, which is what he preferred best, is if the if the majority um, use their political power in votes, um, they will demand a more egalitarian um, distribution of wealth and land. Uh, and that will be unjust for the, you know, small sliver of the population that owns all the land and wealth in ancient Greece, which is um, kind of similar to what we have today in the United States. The framer of the U.S. Constitution, James Madison, saying, said the same problem. If we if we have a true democracy, the majority are going to use their political power to um, have a more egalitarian uh, distribution of wealth and property and um you know essentially power and that would be unjust for the ruling class at the time um so what the the senate uh was about was the basically the that's where the power of the American government uh is it's the wealth of the nation and if any progressive or leftist or socialist policy gets through the first house of government which is unlikely it'll be struck down in the senate um which is still kind of the case today and, uh, the re- the way that the founding fathers chose to, um, address this problem of democracy was to limit it. And again, what we talked about, um, you know, blacks and slaves, you know, three fifths of person were considered, uh, at the time of the founding, they obviously weren't allowed to vote either. They were enslaved. They were considered property, which is absurd for a human being to be considered property. Um, and what we had was, you know, not just every white male, but a certain class of white male that owned property and had wealth uh, and certainly not women you know at the time, but what's what's happened in America is we expanded democracy and the countries became become a lot more civilized so my answer is in democracy, make things a little bit more democratic so as 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 I think there are a lot of positives with the EU and and the way I see it as an outsider, I think it would be a good thing for Britain to stay, uh, in the EU. I think there's no denying that the EU is still run by elites and the trikas. Um, but I'm not so sure that if there was a Brexit, that the same political ca- class that, uh, is in England and, and Britain, I don't, I don't think that there would be much different. Uh, I think the same kind of class of people run the British government that runs the EU, you know what I mean? So, but what say you on all that, that I just kind of, Said there, and then I kind of wanted to get into it. I know I, I'm famous for asking about fifty different questions, but do you consider yourself more of like a historian, a political scientist, uh, a philosopher. Where do you Where do you come at all this with your education and training? What do you see yourself as?
2: Uh, well, yeah, working class background. Um, the story with that in Britain is that for the left party, the Labour Party, to gain power. They actually had to go into the center and they abandoned their trade union uh, member for their seat in government. So there was something called Clause 4 for the Labour Party. And what that meant was that the Labour Union's leaders, they'd be able to actually have a say in the government's operations at the top level. Uh, They'd get a seat at the table in the cabinet. And what happened with the Labour Party is they just said, oh, forget that. We won't do that anymore. We'll go to the center because that's how we're going to get the votes to win this Democratic election. So democracy is always going to depend on the people who were around at the time who have the majority vote, the majority voice. And that's the Democratic process. It's a good thing for those groups who are in the majority. For everyone else, it's not necessarily the best thing. And so you need what we have in the U.S., the Republican constitutional government system. There is the set of rules that we have that the government must obey, they must follow. That doesn't mean they always do, but at least the standard's there that they should. And then you can change it. You can add different things to it. You can update it. I think what we've got in the U.S. is this giant, big piece of constipation, right? We haven't had a constitutional amendment in, what, 70 years? I'm not even sure so we've got, you know, new states joining at the end of after World War II. I believe we've got the end part of what's taken place for the development of the constitution.
0: Well, well that's but what the founding fathers did. They made it. They made it a really rigid piece of sure, d- documentation. Hard to change. We'll over again. Yeah,
2: but what? What do we have? You tell me. Twenty? How many? Twenty something constitutional amendments so far. We we're way up there. It's time for some more updates. We haven't had it in a couple of generations. Is what is what I'm saying there.
0: I agree. But I think it's I, a good system, I, I, and we I, need the update. I, I've just I studied a little bit. Like uh, I consider myself a philosopher, certainly working class first. I've I've studied a little bit um, the Constitution and what maybe experts you know say about it, but I'm just going on their word here. Um, and and I think if the U.S. Constitution, let's say a, a nation. Uh, a new nation was created, you know, tomorrow and they used, um, the U S constitution as their founding, um, whatever is their constitution, they adopted it, you know, word for word or whatever we would consider it a very right wing document, you know, a very right wing document. I mean, there's been many constitutions updated since, uh, with much more, um, you know, oh, yeah. friendly language, uh, and more, you know, I guess, uh, but- focus on human rights and all that kind of stuff but the other thing though is comparing um our constitution with others around the world and again i'm no expert i'm no uh law scholar but i i read something that the u.s is near the top if not the top as the hardest um to change and maybe that's a good thing i mean we sure. it can be considered a good thing because i think the u.s has some of the longest lasting and strongest, uh, whatever quote unquote democratic institutions. Um, you know, never been overthrown, nothing like that. So in some ways it's a good thing, but when we want progressive change, you know, when we want to, you know, a president or maybe a government to get in there and address the climate crisis or address the student loan crisis or address the global pandemic and 30 million people or more, um, that, Don't have health care or the hundreds of thousands of people that go homeless every single day in our streets. It's very difficult to change. I just saw uh, a ridiculous uh, headline that Biden came out and said, uh, the Constitution does not guarantee that we need to take any action on climate crisis. Who cares what this piece of paper says that was written by a cold dead hand hundreds of years ago. We need to address the climate crisis now, whether it says it explicitly in the constitution or not. I don't care. What I do care about is a government that's going to address it and take it seriously. Otherwise it's going to be an existential crisis that ends us all and including future generations that don't have a say that don't get to vote in this. And I think we're near the tipping point. Yeah, good
2: point. No, I mean, it is very difficult to, adapt and add to to change to revoke certain elements of the constitution and that is by design as you say uh my point of it was that that we don't have a democracy we have a constitutional republic and it is uh built for the long term which again is by design and a good thing and it does get uh, handed down over many generations and it but it does also have the opportunity to adapt as we've seen over and over again, right? So you've got uh, multiple different times when you get uh, different uh, uh, constitutional amendments and I'm just looking it up here and we got the most recent 1992 and it's it's happened 27 times. So it's not like it doesn't happen. It's just that it takes these generational crises, these challenges, it takes a tremendous amount of public will for it to actually end up in the, the constitution. Whereas the day-to-day, the running of life in term limits, that's the democratic process. So the, the democracy is the how we do politics, but the republic is what it really is, like at least uh, in the U.S. Like the rules and well, the framework. The government and... Itself, like the de- yeah. yeah, the definition of the government itself is not a democracy, but that's not what we have. If we did, it would be that direct democracy that you talked about where everyone's getting say on all the things all the time. We don't, we have representatives that do it for us, that's a republic. So the, the, the thing I wanted to bring uh, us back to though is um, what's broken in the system. And, and when we look at like the, the the peak of American power when it was really just maybe you could argue the Soviet Union obviously as a nuclear power was a threat, but in terms of you know society, culture, uh, art, uh, literature, education, science, Back in the 50s and 60s, wasn't the most equal of places, of course, and it's taken a lot of work to just have better relations amongst groups in society, uh, racism and sexism, et cetera. But um the, the the point of it was that the top paid their fair share back then, right? The 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 most wealthy, the biggest incomes were essentially funding most things. That went out the window at the end of the Cold War. Because it was a scramble to take over these different parts of the world, these different economies, and it was just uh, a, a, a free, um, an open uh, kind of wild west, but on a global scale, for people to scramble for resources, scramble for wealth, and capture different governments around the world. Right? So corporations these days are bigger than most countries. The the biggest of the corporations, right? Facebook, etc. You can name them. They have more money and they have more pull than other countries. And they should really be in the United Nations. If if we're going to do international politics properly, there should be a caucus of major corporations in there. that are explicitly on uh, the the forums in the discussions and also in the record as to what their actual positions are on various uh, problems and concerns. Right, so so the top need to, I would suggest, really pay their fair share. It's not to say the top are not paying any taxes. Of course they are, and very much so. They're often paying the most of the taxes. But when it was um, actually – when you did have the implementation of Medicare, of Medicaid, of the war on poverty, of the civil rights era initiatives, the wealthiest members of society were sometimes paying as much as 65% of their income to actually put in back into the government to make these things happen um who, who knows what the number should be i you know i'm not gonna pretend like i i know what the coffers are but we all know the deficit is ridiculous we know that it's just a kind of sham system in terms of uh what the us treasury could ever do uh, it was it was designed way back when in the terms of history and politics that I see myself in as uh, a, a historian of international relations, I guess you could say, but most, you know, obviously up on my world politics today. So, you know, I I look at um, efforts for sustainable global
0: societies. That's so what my, did, uh, what critical. did you say? I like that. I mean, I I think so too. I mean, I think that I'm a globalist in in the fact that I want. I want a, a a world um that works together in solidarity and cooperation and not one that's constantly fighting for resources um you know putting groups of people against other groups of people um you know tribalistic i guess yeah we we've,
2: we've reached the point right yeah we have reached, reached the point where there's no more boundaries to go and find there's no, there's there's no other new lands to conquer or take over or occupy or colonize
0: it's well, don't tell we that, that to uh, yeah. Don't tell that's that to Israel. It. Israel has a uh, I think some some a little bit more land in mind. They, they keep taking pieces and pieces away from the Palestinians. But um... every country, every country is going to look and decide. Hey, you know what
2: neighbor? That's actually our place too. There's that's. Tell me a place where it is. I I live in Arizona. You know, uh, before 1940s, excuse me, 1840s, it was Mexico and before then it was the spanish and before then it was indigenous groups that lived off the land and so that, you know who's right it's we, we have to figure out a way where we we
0: we all live together harmony.
2: better harmony at least well i wouldn't necessarily expect that but like disconnect the way that government
0: works with land in did you say you want to figure it out did i hear you say you want corporations to vote in the united nations I think that there's a a fair
2: point that they're already so tremendously influential that they should just now be on the record, right? It's all, uh, like you said, the fundraising schemes of just, all right, we're going to put $10 million down on the person that's going to run in the county or the city's board, right, just so that we can get up on what we want to do as a corporation in that region and it's it's what we would ordinarily call uh corruption we would usually just call it out but for some reason we figured out language and ways in which we can say "Oh no that's just business as usual in american politics so if you have corporations that are tremendously powerful and we obviously do then they should be on the books they should be accounted for they should actually have a say in official government bureaucracies and administrations including the united nations I, I would I would be much happier to hear what Chevron or whoever oil company has to say in Congress. Like get them on the record, have the people listen to what they have to say and what their actual ideas are. And I'm not saying that the people then vote as them being representatives or whatever, but but make it more transparent, make it more uh, clear for exactly who's connected to who. And if I'm going to vote for a politician. Well, who are they actually representing? Are they going to look for my interests and advocate for what I'm looking to do with my life? Or is it really just a shill? And you may as well just say who they are because it's a surprise when it's not that case, right? When there is someone that is able
0: to get to a national level. I'm all for that. I'm all for transparency. (laughs) Uh, I oppose corporations. I think they're private tyrannies. I like... um... I like replacing all, uh, corporations with democratically run worker controlled institutions, more like co-ops, Mondragon, um, you know, that kind of got their start in Spain. They're international. And of course they're part of the capitalist system. So, you know, they're profit seeking institutions for sure. Um, and I think, uh, generally, um, Profit seeking institutions cannot be humanitarian organizations. Uh, and that's exactly what Milton Freeman would said. So I don't say I don't agree a lot with Milton Freeman. Um, but there I, I'm gonna have to agree. Uh, but with that being said, yeah, I, I don't I wanna I wanna dissolve corporations, I want to dissolve their power, I wanna dissolve the military industrial complex and especially the weapons manufacturers and all that kind of stuff. I do want more transparency in government for sure. Uh, I'm gonna. I quoted this, I think, last night or a couple of nights ago. Uh, but I've read some of the founding fathers' stuff, and I think some of the stuff um, that they wrote about in the founding of America um, was decent, and it's still good uh, to remember. Um, but obviously, these are flawed individuals. Thomas Jefferson literally owned people, so when he talked about freedom and justice and equality, all that kind of stuff, he wasn't. He was speaking to a sp- very specific uh, type of person, white person. Um, but This is what he said about democracy and corporations as he saw them right after he got out of office in the early 1800s before his death. Um, The end of democracy and the defeat of the American Revolution will occur when government falls into the hands of lending institutions and moneyed in corporations. Thomas Jefferson, who I do like, uh, I think he's a bit of a leftist. I mean, obviously, again, he had views on slavery that, did not make him very progressive, maybe maybe progressive on th- on some things that uh, during his time, but certainly not today, as, as he was a slave owner. But um, yeah, I think that he said some th- interesting things. He also said something like every fifteen or twenty years, something along those lines. We need a new revolution, uh, and I think what that kind of means is we need to kind of dismantle some of the oppressive um, structures and institutions. Uh, In society, I'm kind of speaking for him now, but the way I see it, uh, the Enlightenment era of philosophy is my favorite era of philosophy. Um, I'm an anarchist, um, or what I might, in in classical terms, consider myself like a socialist libertarian. What the libertarians um, kind of opposed at the time was concentrated power in government, so they kind of opposed the state. But I don't think at the time of the founding of America or during the Enlightenment era philosophy – um, any of those people, any of those thinkers could have imagined um, the power and wealth that the transnational corporations have amassed uh, on a scope and scale that was unparalleled um, hundreds of years ago. So like you had mentioned Chevron and maybe BP, I mean, Amazon, uh, even some of the technology companies, Facebook, uh, I I don't want to give them more power and, and direct Uh, influence in politics, what I would like to do is dismantle them or set up maybe a more democratic organization of them where the workers control it or perhaps the local communities um, that they operate in, you know, control it and influence it instead of uh, these institutions, these private tyrannies, as maybe Chomsky might call them, instead of having the say be the corporate executives, the board of directors and the stockholders. So, Uh, If you ever worked for a corporation or, you know, um, lived in the community that these um, Silicon Valley technology firms operate in, you know, the people in the local area and the workers have very little say in the policies. The policies come from the top and are dictated downward uh, instead of a bottom-up influence. And that's the way I like it. I like a bottom-up, kind of more demically organized um, institutions. I don't necessarily think we have to throw out corporations, but you had mentioned it and we talked about it a little bit as the size of these institutions and communities grow, they come they become a lot more difficult to, to govern. You know, five people can organize themselves probably pretty efficiently, but when we're talking about 500,000 or 5 million or 5 billion people, all of a sudden things get, you know, kind of complicated. So that's why I like, um, you know, kind of smaller scale, loosely affiliated, decentralized institutions, because when you scale up these uh, institutions, you know, things get really complicated, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, a small group of people, it seems like, uh, kind of amass uh, concentrated wealth, power, uh, and influence.
2: Well, yes, yeah, so my, my perspective is uh, very much so Republican with a small R, uh, decentralized, self-sustaining uh, outlook. So... Uh, politics in which people locally have a say, they trust and they know the people running their own local community politics. it's not disconnected and I think that's the big thing we've got right. As soon as it's upscaled to a point where we're not to about fifty people or five hundred people, but it's fifty thousand people and you never meet the person or if you do it's just some kind of um, you know talking point that they'll throw at you. Or, you know, if it's a debate in which they feel like they're losing, they might insult you and then they win the crown. It's like a high school popularity contest instead of actually dealing with people's problems and lives. So I, I'm, you know, it's very much localized, um, like I say, Republican with a small R. By that, I mean constitutional Republican, not the Republican Party and very much not a monarchist, which is the background in Britain. Uh, so. From my family's point of view, you know, there's, there's Irish nationalists, Republicans on one side and the, uh, you know, very much kind of in-group English Church of England uh, patriotic kind of family on the other side. So, you know, people people didn't necessarily see eye to eye when I was growing up uh, on very contentious issues, including, you know, bloodshed and warfare and people losing their lives and their family members losing their property. Uh, as a result of those losses. So for me, it, it is important to have a, a direct connection with your political representatives. And if that's not the case, you you really just have to uh, ask yourselves, what, what's the point in participating to someone that doesn't represent you, that is on the corporate books in some way. And it, it's just a matter of um, really not necessarily expecting much from them in those national politics and those debates. You never know. There, there's, there could be a surprise. We might see a point in which massive multinational corporations who are making more money than we've ever seen end up paying their fair share. And if we do see that, well, then we'll see the regeneration of uh, American society that we haven't seen for a couple of generations now. Um, and, and, and it is something that happens when you are no longer – a leading empire right Amer- the american empire uh was one that inherited most of the world or much of the world's economy after the british and the british uh threw away their lot to attempt to get into uh european wars there wasn't a very good reason to get into world war one for the british world war Two, arguably a little bit more um in terms of quelling the rising tide of fascism across Europe and the world, but also the Soviet Union, and its attempts to conquer many parts of the world as well. So the British have, have, you know, they've been a mixed bag too, but they haven't been all that terrible in many ways. They have developed this decentralized process where local people have their own form of politics. Uh, So I don't think one size is going to fit all. I think it has to be this a, a range of different wardrobes, if you like to use that metaphor of clothing, the idea where it's going to be different tastes for different societies, different cultures having their own little forms of localized politics in which it works for the people in those places in the world. Um, and we kind of have something like that with the nation states, the countries as they exist, except they can't get on very well. We're constantly in the state of war. Right? It's been oh, uh, some, something of uh, an exception to have peacetime In all of recorded history, three and a half or so thousand years of which we have written documents, it's been 250 years of peace. Every other year has been war. And that's the kind of norm that we have in in the way that people get on with each other. So if there was a way to move on from cutting each other to shreds, fantastic. We'd we'd be on a great path then. Uh, The trick of it is, well, then how do you get on with each other? I don't go on the street and in, enforce my own form of justice with the people I meet, right? I leave it to professionals. I hand off my ability to, to uh, take force against other people. I leave that to the police. I leave that to the military. I hand it off. Most people in society do. And that's where you have less incidents and violence amongst civilians you hand it off to the government the government is going to take care of it one way or the other they are the authorized users
0: of force they have a monopoly so, on violence the government they have a monopoly on force exactly
2: right that's back to a, a, a political sociologist max weber and this idea that you have to provide them with a monopoly and if you don't get in and if you do expect to get treated very badly and very roughly because the government is going to prize that monopoly they're going to insist upon it. Now you've got organized crime, you've got gangs, you've got uh, other militaries and other governments and countries as rivals to the, the monopolized use of force. But logically speaking, the only way that we, we would generally, genuinely have a, a, a politics that's functional with reduced forms of violence is to have some international force that no one bothers to rival. That has a monopoly and we it might happen I'd be surprised if it's that we've already we've gone about 150 years of the most powerful countries vying to become that and it has constantly been uh, competed and contested and that's why we get into world war so if there was going to be another world war then the only upshot to it would be whoever is left standing they end up being the government for the entire world. And no one else bothers to try to uh, dispute that they are in charge and they have the monopolized use of force. Is it going to happen? I don't think it right? it might happen for a glimpse, right? America was the most powerful country in the world, undisputed from the end of the Cold War, but it only lasted 10 years. And well, it's actually the most
0: powerful attacks. country. The It's... Its peak of American power was right around 1945, after the uh, the nuclear weapon was bom- dropped twice on Japan. Sure, and that but point other time- countries were rivaling. They were
2: they they weren't the only one in the in town. That's the difficult difference here with uh, U.S. Prim- primacy, the the single most powerful country, and so a lot of people were looking around and saying, "Well, democracy's one, capitalism is won. but it lasted ten years. It, it's it's one of the shortest windows of of. A one uh, most powerful country that we've seen in history, right? Empires that usually have greater sway over different parts of the world, they last a lot longer than 10 years. So why is that? Why is it that that we see uh, even the most productive, the most uh, successful of countries, without doubt, that's the USA, when they get the chance to go and run the world, they could only do it for 10 years. The government could only do it for 10 years without – to before uh eventually ending up pissing off enough people where it was like, all right, fine. We'll just go back to uh warfare, terrorism, whichever way you want to call it. We will now uh contest your claim of being the most powerful country. And now we're in this multipolar world, they call it, right, where they've got yeah. multiple different countries who are far and away have better – prospects for this century it was supposed to be the American century that's gone and we're only in 2023 right so there's there's a there's a problem in terms of uh the difference between American politics inside the country versus American politics outside of the country and if you've ever traveled anyone that's traveled you know this as an American citizen elsewhere in the world versus how life is in the U.S uh in terms of how people treat you how they respect or disrespect often american citizens in different parts of the world it's because there's an assumption that america is gonna i'm not saying all americans believe this by any means right but american government's projecting the ideas of well we'll, we'll provide you with the means to become a democracy right we're going to spread democracy that's the the message of going into iraq which was not abs- that's the, right. the last
1: vision, yeah the, the last vision. thing on
2: their mind was democracy, of course not so so the, the 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 reality the the for a lot of the rest of the world is, okay, well, it's just bank while you can, right, scramble for as much as you can as often as you can, and leave everyone else to figure it out later um and that only ever ends up with very, very limited resources for too many people. Um, And then you get into what I'm, uh, in my studies, I'm very interested in, which is governments that then take these surplus populations and just send them into the meat grinder of war, right? And uh, we're not that, we're not at the point in the U.S. and and which very strangely enough, COVID has kind of brought the likelihood of the U.S. throwing bodies into the carnage of a modern war anytime soon. Because it's not even trying to win a war sometimes. It's simply a matter of getting rid of too many people. It's a depopulation process for a lot of countries, right? You look at... Yeah, interesting. North I haven't Korea, thought of it that
0: way. Right, you it look at North getting, Korea... Getting rid of the superfluous within that domestic yeah. society. You think that's... True
2: warfare, right. And and often young men who will otherwise rival the powers that be, the, the political elites. Because if you have a group of young men who are willing to take up arms they may well overthrow the government. And it's not like that hasn't happened before. Um, and so the, the, the issue of sending them off to fight elsewhere, well, then this, this is the risk-reward game of militaries. Because if you can bring them onto your side, right, if you can't beat them, join them, as they say, you become a vet of some kind, you get some rewards. It wasn't the best of lifestyle, but it may be a bit better than what you would have got otherwise if you could last the test of time and live through the conflict. Um, and this is the the kind of carrot of diplomacy internally uh, in terms of domestic politics within the U.S. for young men, which now has often also been uh, switched out and outsourced. Right? So the crisis of young men in many Western countries is that they can't even be the heroes of their own countries anymore because security is outsourced. There's someone in a developing country that's lived through a war since they were a kid. They have 30 years of military experience, right. and they're still going into the battles, and they're for hire as a mercenary. contractor, mercenary, right. whatever you want to call it, sure. right? private military contractor. You want to make bank, you're going to Ukraine, not to save some concept of democracy, but because you can earn five years' income in a six-month deployment. right? That's just unheard of. You can't do it elsewhere. You can't do it in any other circuses, and that goes for American vets too, right? They're off doing all sorts of things as consultants, however you want to put it. But it, it's because it's it's about making as much money as possible while you still can, while you're still breathing. Um, and, and governments are happy to to let populations grow fat until the point where it's like, okay, now we just. There is this concept of necropolitics; they call it right? the politics of taking advantage of death—and uh, wars are often genuinely about that, right? I've got all sorts of different anecdotes of veterans and soldiers, eyewitnesses, who have seen, just the tremendously intentional forms of slaughter to throw bodies into the mix. Um, and it's not against uh, often even trying to claim victory in some war. It's because they don't really want that population around anymore, right? We've got all sorts of groups from World War I, uh, there's various cases of genocide in World War II during the Holocaust. You've got all sorts of groups being sent into the frontline carnage on purpose to actually take advantage of the situation and uh, cull parts of the population under the guise of war. Uh, so so if you're interested in that kind of thing, I, I would point you to uh, a scholar's name, uh, Richard L. Rubenstein. And um, for for those who are concerned with the cunning of history, this idea that you've got history as itself a political tool that's manipulated, like you were saying, with the propagandized messages in the media, uh, the the concept that uh, Rubenstein came up with in terms of this, uh, how do you expend these surplus populations, these unwanted groups? Uh, He came up with it in a different work of his called The Age of Triage. And this is very interesting, especially if you're interested in uh, economics from the 1970s. Right on the the cusp of the Reagan era years, uh, Rubenstein was talking about how we we have this boom of the homeless population, specifically because government couldn't care less. They're going to have them on the streets and they're not going to take care of them is a triaging of society, right? Just like in a medical circumstance where there's two wounds, which one is the priority? And you triage the situation and you treat the most serious injury first. And so governments have been doing this because governments are so stripped of resources because corporations are happy to take advantage of the public Well, right? I was talking about this with my son. He's 12. He goes to uh, seventh grade and his teacher told him, You know we would need five more years of rainfall just to make up for the droughts that we've had for the last six years and it's been a very cold and hard winter with a lot of snow and there's also been a lot of rain this summer as well and so there's very so far thankfully there are not forest fires but constantly it's a summer thing it happens in the forest right but the, the 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 way that the teacher was explaining it to my son was We would need five more years to bring up to the levels of where we were, even though when you go and look at the numbers on the reservoirs, they're at max. A lot of them are are actually at max right now. And the difference of what's going on is where are corporations getting their raw materials? They're getting it from the public well. How is it that a corporation that needs water, right, any of the soft drink manufacturers, the... the, um, the, uh, Help me out. What's the American phrase for soft drink? I'm, I'm losing. Soda or pop. Soda. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. There yeah. you go. Soda. right A soda manufacturing company. You you can think of two right now, right? The
0: big so ones. Coca-Cola cool. is the number one world polluter. I think they got that title six six years in a row with uh, billions literally billions get... of uh, plastic bottles polluted all over the world, there's, including there's the, the Plastic oceans. bottles.
2: Yeah. But the, and They don't clean up the messes, but also these corporations don't get their resources by their own means. They tap the public resources. They are taking tremendous amounts of resources from publicly built infrastructure that is there to feed, clothe, house, provide water, for and medical all of these other processes and services that are built from the public purse for the public consumption. But it gets cut out of the loop, they, and they don't pay their way, right? So it, it, imagine a world in which corporations had to go and find their own natural resources. They had to build their own reservoir, right? They had to have their own forestries.
0: I've made rest- this comparison that uh, that the road system, uh, which was, really got to yeah. start in the 1950s, uh, which is made from a, um, an oil byproduct, but the, and it was all – you said guys of war – and when I was reading that, I was reading some stuff in your book here, um, the guise of war. I thought that was interestingly put because the way I see it, the guise of defense, or you know maybe the guise of fear. Like in the United States, um, we used to have uh, the Department of War. And I think 1947 or 1948. That was changed to the Department of Defense, and a propaganda play, uh, because I guess in the old days, you know, the, the people that ran the country were a lot more honest. Now, of course, we're the Department of Defense because, of course, we were defending ourselves from the Iraqis and the Afghans and yeah. um You know, the the Nicaraguans and the Guatemalans. I mean, you know, of course these nations were directly directly threatening uh, United States security in our borders. No, of course not. That's pretty, that's all sarcasm. The United States has basically been at war since 1776, constantly. Uh, The last time the United States borders were threatened was the War of 1812, when um, some of your cronies, Chris... Came down to our, our neck of the woods and burned down the White House. No, I'm just I'm totally kidding with you. But that was the last time the United States borders were threatened. Uh, War of 1812, White House was uh, burned down when uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked. That was a colony uh, of the United States, and that was a colony taken at gunpoint. Uh, let me. I just wrote down tons and tons of stuff here while you were talking. Um, but I think the United States um, in 19 I don't know 45 46 right after the bombs were dropped, um, which I, I've talked about at, at nauseum on the last few podcasts. I don't want to get to too much into nuclear war. Uh, we can go there though. I do have a couple of quotes here. So first off, um, Chomsky kind of has, has said this in the past that basically the, <laughs> the the favorite sport of Europeans for centuries was slaughtering each other in war. Uh, and then finally, World War II, they realized their favorite game of slaughtering each other could end it for all of us. So I think that maybe that was one of the reasons that the EU was started. Einstein and Bertrand Russell um, came out as, as peace activists and opposed um, nuclear war. And I think Einstein is usually credited with this quote, but said something along the lines of, I know not what weapons World War Four, or I'm sorry, World War Three, will be fought uh, but world war four will be fought with sticks and stones. And I think that's an idealist perspective. I don't think anyone's going to be around to fight world war four. Um, and here's uh, so I, I am, I think I've, t- I posted this today. I sent out actually the nuclear, um, the, the non nuclear proliferation treaty of the UN that was uh, signed by the United States, which nobody takes, um, seriously, but I'd sent that out today. Um, if we were actually doing our due diligence, um, we would end the production and the proliferation of nukes, and but we're not. And we it still it's still used um, as a weapon of, I guess, defense. They they call it defense, but I think it's a first strike weapon. The way I see it, uh, I don't think it's defending uh, ourselves from anyone. I've I've quoted um, this on other podcasts that there was a time during the Cuban Missile Crisis where we were one word away from nuclear war. Uh, a nuclear submarine, a Russian nuclear submarine with a nuke on board, was attacked. Uh, By a U.S. destroyer, Um, they wanted to surface, Um, they were very, the the crew were were frightened, Um, they did not need uh, any say from Moscow to fire, uh, as long as the officers, all three of them were in agreement, they could fire on the U.S. Two of the officers said that uh, we should fire. And the one said, no, we should not fire. And the world was a much better place because it was very close, one word away from nuclear war. I could only imagine if a U.S. destroyer was fired on by the, a Russian submarine with a nuke, what would have happened? I think the entire nuclear arsenal would have been sent to Russia by the United States. At least that's the way I think. Uh, that's a hypothetical. can't be certain, but I believe that's the policy of the United States, mutually assured destruction. I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that's still the policy. Um but' is, but uh, let's see, I'm trying to find this one quote, um but you're not basically we have we have um okay, here it is uh, so general Lee Butler, former commander of u s strategic command for nuclear war, stated that her survival so far of the nuclear era is attributable to sheer luck and divine intervention. And I, I, I suspect the latter in greatest proportion. So basically divine intervention. We've been lucky somehow. I don't know how we've escaped nuclear annihilation, but we have. And then finally, this is Bertrand Russell. Shall we put an end to the human race or shall mankind renounce war? So that's how I feel about nuclear war and uh, continued war and destruction and carnage and all that kind of stuff that I was reading in your book today. Um Uh, might as well be time now to mention it genocidal conscription drafting victims and perpetrators under the guise of war Uh, and that's kind of what we you know got together to talk about today let me just say one other thing here we talked about the United States being a republic uh, maybe even a democracy at least in theory um, at least democratically organized um, you know for some members of society at least but uh, public institutions are at At or near all-time lows, Uh, the Congress flirts with single-digit approval ratings. Uh, Last month, or maybe now two months ago, um, the Supreme Court has sunk to its lowest approval rating in U.S. history. This at the same time when members of Congress or incumbents are winning re-election in the high 90s. So Americans are fed up with our government. We don't like it. We don't approve of it. It doesn't work. Um, I think uh, I think the majority of Americans want to see an election in 2024 that does not involve either uh, Biden or Trump. And it looks like the way I see it, we're going to get both. Um, but when you see in, in the Soviet Union, I believe it was low 90s incumbents win. So the, the Soviet Union, which as I see it, a totalitarian state and is an anarchist. I rile up communists. I rile up Marxists. I, I rile up Republicans here and Democrats here because I, I, I've never met or read about any form of government that I like. But I think democracy is best, and I, I like a society organized around Democratic institutions. That's why I like anarcho-syndicalism. But when you see incumbents um, winning elections in the high 90s, okay, and you see a public approval ratings of public and Democratic supposedly institutions at or near all-time lows – what that says to me is options are not being presented to the electorate. It's just kind of crap in, crap out, um, and on, it's, on, it's starting to seem like you know nothing more than a sideshow. You know U.S. politics being nothing more than a sideshow. Um, Chomsky was really critical of Reagan as just being kind of a sideshow, uh, or maybe just being a figurehead. He didn't really believe or even know what the policies of his administration were. Um, he would just kind of go out and shake hands. He was a bit of an enigma. Uh, I think biography biographers even said that. They really didn't even know what what this guy was thinking. The way I see it, I see a lot of cognitive decline of Joe Biden, too. I think he potentially could be compared as, um, you know, the new age Reagan, the modern Reagan uh, I don't know how much say he's having in his administration's policy decisions right now, but the way I see it he's not he doesn't make very many public appearances. I think the machine, the democratic machine is kind of running behind the scenes and every once in a while Biden gets on stage to make a public appearance just to make sure everything's all good and you know wave hands and you know shake some wave his hand and shake some hands and all that kind of stuff, kiss babies, all that kind of stuff. so um, yeah, I think that uh, I think that you know. D- democracy <laughs> is, uh, you know, an idea, and, and I think it's the best form of government, but I would not definitely not say that, uh, you know, in any functional way, that, you know, the United States is a functioning government, and I think that that's kind of the root of most of the problems. I think we have a system run by elites uh, and, and some of the most powerful corporate institutions in society are um, weapons contractors. The United States is the leading terrorist state in the world. It's also the number one. It's, it's involved in, I think, over half of weapons sales and and um, weapon, weapons trafficking. So the United States, if it's not directly perpetrating violence, it's helping other nations perpetrate that violence. Uh, and in, in terms of, you know, uh, I think the Israel-Palestinian conflict is very important to me. Without the United States... Um, political economic and direct military support uh israel would not be able to carry out the crimes which the un has called out on numerous occasions against uh, the palestinians and what they're doing there and they're um you know colonial and maybe even as some mentioned i I follow mick wallace on twitter he's called it called them an apartheid state um but actually chomsky said that uh, it's 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 not an apartheid state it's worse because they are being exterminated um an apartheid state at least in south africa there was a class of people that you know serviced the rich white upper classes you know they were um the service sector of the economy in the israel palestinian conflict uh, the palestinians are being wiped out exterminated the property seized and even being outright killed uh, which is much worse than Apartheid State. So those are some of the things I wrote down while while you were talking. Feel free to get to any of them. And then, yeah, sure, I'd love to get to some of the book ideas, too. I did have, as we talked on the pre-call, about, um, you know, kind of, kind of Chomsky's at least views on conscription and the draft being a little bit better than um, having a Basically, a mercenary army who's much more violent, and typically, what you want to do with a mercenary army is, you know, pay them for bloodshed, pay them really well, and ideally get them from a different part of the world so that they go in and have no qualms about, you know, exterminating or, you know, you know, leading to uh, genocide of a particular um, country or I was reading some of the things in your book about, you know, genocide and its description, the the, the destruction or extermination of a particular country or a people. Um, it's a lot. citizens army is a little bit more democratic um it's pulled from a larger distribution more more um i guess uh diverse population group a draft um and that's some of the problems in the vietnam is what what the colonizer or what the you know whatever the imperial agenda the united states had in vietnam um they what what why it maybe didn't uh, succeed on all fronts, um, as Chomsky called it, a partial victory in Vietnam. Why it didn't c- c- uh, c- uh, succeed on all fronts was there was mutinies. There was a lot of pushback. A lot of the service members did not want to be there. They didn't know why they were there, and that uh, had an effect. Um, if it was a mercenary army, it might have been completely wiped off the map, but uh, a lot of the fighting was fought by a civilian um, a, a civilian military that was a little bit more diverse and came from different uh, parts of society, and a lot of them didn't want to be there. And I think that that might have, uh, the mutinies and the pushback as uh, might have been some of the positives as to why the U.S. Uh, objectives weren't completely met there. And I also read a lot of one, World War One stuff. There was a lot of mutinies going on there, too. The front, um, there's a lot of people that didn't want to be there. I, I, I read some stuff on... Uh, I guess if you didn't go over the, what they say, over the top out of the trench, the officers would shoot you dead. That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty serious. So yeah, basically if you're going over the top, you're probably going to get killed uh, in between the trenches in World War One, or you get shot behind the lines by an officer. Those are two bad choices, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the World War I, uh circumstances of war, the uh, highly effective mechanized weapons the mass armies a lot of military law martial law did provide uh, commanders with the option of execution uh people that refused to obey orders uh, several of them were on record as also being charged and then prosecuted and then executed uh in the british case there was about 306 known cases of execution uh for reasons of desertion or cowardice sometimes um like you say they were just like coming up with the official charge but it was because they were not going over the top like you said um and and so that's something that still hasn't really been well addressed in the, the history uh In the context of the government in Britain, I know this one, I just wrote a piece about this exact thing. Conscientious objectors, people who would not uh, commit violence, who would refuse orders, but they were drafted anyway. They were conscripted. And so you have uh, the government in 2006 of the United Kingdom saying, uh, yeah, it was probably not the best idea to execute them. However, the government was totally in their means and quite right to do so anyhow. So it's this kind of weird muddled apology, Um, you know, almost 20 years ago now when when they came up with this idea that, yeah, we should probably look back at what happened back then. But they haven't really dealt with the issue at all. I know in Canada, the same issues happened in the U.S. There was torture in the prison systems uh, with men who did not want to go and serve but were drafted and and also executed, killed, strangled, uh, these extrajudicial killings. So there's nothing new in that that regard um the, the only difference is that from uh essentially the 30s there, there were some incidences in world war Two when it comes to this idea of of individuals but it, it is more so the the genocidal regimes of the holocaust that, that were conducting this against jewish civilians so when it comes to you know all the way up to date and the idea that governments are going to be committing crimes or committing uh extrajudicial um, illegal practices that's kind of the norm that's that's like that's not that surprising it can happen anywhere in the world and with any different uh, particular country the issue with the the uh, israel and palestine conflict we're, we're just going to see that carry on uh i don't see any resolution anytime soon unless the united
0: uh, states stops
2: supporting israel i mean again without without yeah, it, um Israel has other allies you know Israel is is strongly aligned Turkey to the north it's not likely that it's gonna you know so there there are there are problems in politics within the Arab world that Israel is on both sides of the the dispute with these other countries there so it's not as simple as just the Palestinians and the Israelis particularly um I I think if there was a Palestinian state we'd still have a conflict that there'd still be problems
0: I think it would be uh, so, a step in the right direction, though. I, I, I think it would be the, the two-state settlement would be a step in the right direction. Of course, there would still be conflict we need to work out, but it would be at least a good first yeah, but, step.
2: Then, right, and whose land is it going to be, right? The, I don't think any part of Israel, whether it's officially or internationally recognized as such, but if Israel's calling it Israel, it's going to be Israel, you know, and uh, biblically speaking or, you know, Talmudically speaking, if you like, the Jewish Bible. Uh, it's for, it's going to be from Sinai in Egypt through to um, the Euphrates in, in Iraq. That's that's the traditional Israel, um, and it's a much much larger. It's about four times the size of the space that is now the state of Israel. And this is a this is like how how long might that project last? The Zionist mission for for actually settling Israel as it's to, uh, explained in the um, the um, the Bible sorry, yes, yeah, so Euphrates, what's that in Egypt, and then um ah oh, I forgot what's the what's the um the line up towards um Baghdad well it, we could mark it out if you like it's, it's from north of Baghdad in what's today Kurdistan, which the Kurds want their own country, so that's not going to happen anytime soon, right uh you've got all the way to um, Basra which is uh, on the border of Kuwait. So that other side of the Arabian Peninsula, then going through to the Sinai Peninsula. um, And so you've got um, what is a a vision for a lot of people alive today in Israel, that's way off right there. The idea of a two state solution and having a Palestine uh, nation state somewhere in the neighborhood, for those who believe in the Zionist project, the, the effort is actually to take over much, much more land in the region. So um so they're just getting started to, is what
0: you're saying. I don't know about
2: they, right? But but some people, yeah, the most fervent believers in the Zionist Project would like a lot more of that territory because so, that's their religious belief. I, now, politically speaking, I don't who knows. I'd I would be very surprised if that happens ever because it, it was from a, a period of time in which um, there was a chance of occupying those territories. And that was, bef- that was pre-Islamic, right? And then Islam has come and done a tremendous amount of um, conquering and land acquisition over the centuries itself with the various developments of the Ummah. And so now you're in a place where having any state of Israel For Jewish people to live as a homeland is probably a a very good idea, even for uh, those who are pushing for a a greater Zion, a bigger Zion, a a larger cut of the pie. Um, And and so resolutions and and efforts to resolve, it's only going to last so long, right? Because you're going to still have those who want much, much more land on both sides, on many of the sides, Um, And it's going to be a continual um, set of conflicts in that part of the world. It's also just geopolitically speaking, right? It's a pivot point between three continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. So if you're running that part of the world, you have uh, a hub of trade, as it's always been, right? It's one of the first settlements of human civilization. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So so I don't – in terms of how – very right, in terms of who, who's going to take care of who and who right. who's going to uh, violate who's right. – well, you, you're going to only have your own rights protected by your own government. So if you don't have your own government, you're already on the a bad pathway there, right? Um, and if it's not going to happen in that part of the world, go so – it is, it Anywhere, is a simple,
0: Pick a place. You'll find conflict. Sure. Okay, so what I'd like to say on the Israel-Palestinian conflict is I think a two-state settlement would be a good start in the right direction – But eventually, you know, a unified one state, I would be fine with, and I think a lot of people um, in the area, in the region, want that too. What I oppose is a uh, religious state. I don't think the United States is a Christian state, although some people do, um, and I don't think that... um, a Jewish state should exist just like I don't think a Christian state should exist. Just like I don't think uh, an Islam state, you know, should exist. I'm not very well versed in, in, in religion, to be honest with you. But what I do believe in is democracy. That's the religion I subscribe to. Um, so, And I think with, with Israel, there's, there's a reason that they don't want um, a one-state democracy. That's because there's too many Palestinians, um, too many Arabs, or however... They want to, you know, differentiate, but um, in, in general, I think the two-state settlement is the world world consensus. Um, I think it's been that way since the 1970s. But I think over time, uh, a one-state settlement, with a democratic region, um, you know, with maybe two Jerusalem's, um, you know, organized and divided up, however, uh, would be fine with me, um, as long as it's a democratic state and not a religious state, where putting some group of people above others. I oppose that. Uh, Let's finish out those strong here. We're going to focus on your book uh, and uh, on ways of stopping genocide. Let me just set back up my, my comments before uh, what I'd read from Chomsky and heard from Chomsky about is that he thinks the draft was a positive because it was, Less violent for the for the victims of U.S. aggression and and military intervention in in Vietnam because of the draft, we had a civilian army, and typically civilian armies um, are not as um, violent or as ruthless as a mercenary army. And you had talked about you know someone going and fighting for money and 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 maybe you know uh, six months salary for. or or several years salary for one deployment. So what do you think about um, that charge or that whatever um, point that maybe in some ways uh, conscription and um, the draft was a good thing, at least for the victims of the U.S. US war path. What do you think about those thoughts? Well, you gotta, you gotta go
2: into every case and and take a look at the particulars. So Chomsky, uh didn't serve, right? He he can say all he likes about drafting or not drafting. He he was taking his dissertation years then. So he was exempted. The, when you have a draft, there's gonna be exemptions of many kinds. Uh and the effort of a draft for civilian training, I think, is actually a really good idea. Um for preparation for actual self defense, for genuine methods of military defense for your own country in that space. I actually am not against that by any means. My work for looking at genocidal conscription is also not against any forms of conscription, uh, but it is talking about the situations when a regime that is looking for an excuse to throw bodies at a a frontline war uh, zone in which a specific group of conscripts ends up dead, uh, then It is a tool by which genocidal regimes can pull that lever, draft a ton of people, usually battle-aged men as they're called, younger men, also teenage boys, right? They're not uh, excused from a lot of this uh, required service. And so you're, you're, you're providing the state with the decision as to not just who fights, but who lives and who dies. And so there's so many problems when it comes to a functional draft that isn't going to have people get five exemptions and go run a multinational corporation in their father's name, for example, right? Or uh, go off to education and college and let everyone else do the fighting for them, in Chomsky's case. So it, it is a little rich, I find, to say, yeah, it's a good idea because it doesn't inflict. I mean, there were 20 million deaths, I think. Some estimates go as high as 50 million deaths for the vietnamese population from not just the american
0: uh involvement but also before with the french is, with uh, the french yeah right we followed yeah. the french's footsteps a lot we did that in haiti as well i believe right the United oh States. well what
2: i mean right but, but but vietnam was attempting to uh claim independence from the french empire previously right. so their enemies right. were the french soldiers in vietnam in right. indochina so so the draft can work it can be quite equalizing but it's extremely open to all sorts of abuses and corruption even genocidal that's what my book is about in terms of like what would be good what has worked what is more equalizing a giant gap that a lot of people don't necessarily point to or or see the blinders on many people's thoughts of how conscription might work effectively men and women for self defense training in a civilian capacity go and um, can you imagine a political leader of the united states going on a term of service to police a local community and that was a part of their required service right A civilian training capacity it doesn't need, need to always be military and often a war somewhere else in the world where thousands of people are dying in a battle it can be uh conscription where the required service is a form of community service and you actually have political representatives putting themselves into that good work for their communities. That would be a, a huge regeneration for democracy, for sure, and in any kind of government, I would argue. Um, so so the book looks at um, contemporary concerns. It's the historical comparison of the Armenian Genocide in the Ottoman Empire and then also Jewish Hungary, and their conscripts during the Axis era. Of World War Two and the Holocaust, and then I also look at contemporary concerns because, like, what are the, the takeaways from these cases? Subordination of minority group who are at some point in a war stripped of arms and have no way to fight back, and the young men of their communities are those who are taken, captured, and pushed into the war where they die sometimes they're even massacred by their own commanders and that's a really key aspect in the work but the point of it is a minority community that has young men who are exploited and then destroyed killed off in various ways and the way to reverse all of that is that you don't have subordination you have greater quality greater opportunities for access of those minority communities right so think of um any government you could talk about israel you could talk about the united states if there was a draft and in israel there has been a draft men and women for uh since its founding in the late 1940s and it's worked very effectively to secure and defend the state so you there there are all sorts of examples um in terms of like the idea where it wouldn't be so bad on some other enemy's population i just don't see that i just don't see it in the evidence at all i mean the there there was i studied the vietnam era as a grad student of history probably 9 or 10 years ago and the the week that we were studying the the work someone else died of a uh, munitions explosion armaments and artillery shell that was sitting in a farm buried and the farmer came along and they did their plowing and they blew up and died and it was 20 whatever it was 13 or 2014 so this happens now, people are still dying from the warfare on, the, on uh,
0: America's enemy's side. I think it's so, what they're trying so, to do with the cluster bombs, too, in Ukraine. I believe that that's similar to some of the things that are killing and have killed Vietnamese and people uh, in the United States. Warpath is, you know, munitions that didn't explode and then get stepped on by villagers, children, women, um, sometimes years or even decades after the fighting has stopped um so that's you know, kind great. of civilian yeah. populations at risk still
2: so I, I i would say that we need we need uh, conscription is is kind of dependent upon what the civilians want to do but i think we actually need greater reforms in terms of how warfare takes place whether i agree that's what i wanted okay. to get to that right. is- massive massive destruction of civilian populations is a very modern phenomenon it hasn't really happened. Um, up to a a, an era of where we've got the world wars and previously in the 1800s as well but but it was it was very commonplace right for for military forces to commit atrocities against civilians but then there was an era in which people said you know what yeah after the nuclear weapons maybe it's not such a great thing that we do that and yet it just carried on so if we could figure out ways in which civilian populations are not considered legitimate targets of warfare then we'd actually be onto to some uh genuine progress for just human rights right this is beyond my book or or the issues of conscription but but in terms of like being aware that civilians really genuinely shouldn't be in anywhere near a war zone, then we'd be onto something and and if a government sends its military against a civilian population, well then it's really time to actually just entirely uh, overrun that government, right? But they should be not just prior and sanctions. Um, then you get into the catch twenty two of, well, what are you talking about with a nuclear armed opponent of Russia, right? How are you going to take them out? We're back where we are. I think that there are efforts and, and, and genuine opportunities for developing nullification technologies, whether this is the whole kind of sci fi of, you know, the electromagnetic pulse type procedure or whatever the thing might be i think i think we're. i think there there are some processes by which we could actually nullify nuclear technology in terms of weapons don't ask me i don't know how right but that would, that <laughs> yeah. would be something that would be that would Sounds be a good game.
0: theory yeah
2: right and it, it's not like it, it couldn't happen right but how it happens and, and what way it happens who, who knows but that that would be genuinely hold, holding you know corrupt and violent governments to account, that's the biggest problem we've always had as societies who would rather live uh with at least some kinds of better outlook and better opportunities for ourselves and our families. So um yeah the book it took me a long time to study and, and come up with the book and, and figure it out. And I I was always questioning how it is that so many hundreds of thousands of men end up on these battlefields as corpses how could that be okay in anyone's imagination um and just normalized mass losses and mass death so hopefully we won't get to the point where it's so normalized like you were saying right there won't be a world war four
0: mm-hmm. um let's let's hope we don't see a world war three i think that some of the reasons um well i think what capitalism does i'm a big um opponent of capitalism generally uh, i think that some of the reason that war is fought is because of the weapons and defense that I had mentioned to you, and the profiteering from war. These private um, defense contractors—defense I say in quotes because they're, they're violence contractors—that um, kind of thing. Um, and uh, at the time, I had said about the United States after the last bomb of World War II was dropped, controlled about fifty percent of the world's wealth and had a fraction of the population. And then the Marshall Plan rebuilt Europe um, uh, because of the U.S. taxpayers. That was the plan uh, as long as um, a lot of the the rebuild was done by uh, U.S. corporations. Um, I did want to make mention of this, though, too. um, The Nuremberg Tribunal and the Nuremberg Code. So basically they kind of chose to charge Nazis with crimes that the allies didn't commit um so the allies and their bombing campaigns had uh targeted many of german cities um and uh as well as japan and and tokyo the firebombing of tokyo which killed hundreds of thousands of people the nuclear bomb which killed hundreds of thousands of civilians and maybe millions of people in the decades that followed and you know talking about um you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, fetuses and 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 babies with um, deformities and all kinds of just terrible, terrible things from the radiation. Um, but yeah, I mean that is one thing that the 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 Nazis weren't charged with because the Allies were actually. Um, the ones that did more of the civilian bombings and installations, um, you know, killing innocent people. Um, and I had mentioned this on another podcast is actually last night with the physicist. I, I don't think that the bomb should have ever been dropped. He was in agreement there, even even if it was developed prior to um, the fall of Germany, which we both agreed on. I don't think it should have ever, ever been dropped. Um, the whole point of, uh, I guess, inventing the bomb was to beat the Germans to it. But even if we did, uh, I, I don't think this weapon should have ever been used in warfare. Because, I mean, just think about uh, how many people put nuclear weapons going to kill that are innocent. Certainly, a nuclear bomb is not just going to hit in- military installments. So that's what I, a more humane way of fighting war. And that's kind of what I wanted to bridge to. I have in front of me um, the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and then I also have... Um, the non-proliferation treaty, I guess, in front of me here. That's not as relevant. I guess I'm more so interested in the Geneva Convention, which I didn't print out. Um, And also, and there's several different, um, I guess, votes or, you know, I guess amendments or whatever. They had different different Geneva Conventions. The one I was more focused on, and and the same one that sounds like you are more focused on, is civilians. I mean, it's one thing, um, you know, to... uh, Violence against other military members, and I think some of the first two were basically about like prisoners of war and being a more humane treatment and not to torture people. Which I think I'm, I'm in agreement. I don't think too many people around the world are in favor of torching human beings. Um, but the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, maybe the Geneva Convention. The way I see it, and I really like Chomsky. I say his name so many times. Um, On my podcasts, but the way he sees it, you know, the world isn't necessarily run by international law or feel-good human rights um, bills written, um, but more so by by violence. Uh, You know, the the, Russia didn't go to um, an international court or to you know diplomatic means to um, try to conquer the Ukraine. They invaded by force, uh, and they're using a tactic. That many countries came before it have used, uh, and the United States has used in many instances. Um, they're using force to acquire political uh, power, uh, territory, resources, um, all whatever their their aims are in the in the Ukraine. Um, and obviously, the United States had Middle East um, I- interests were to control resources. Um, I think in the United States, something like uh, half the population. there's a lot of propaganda. Uh, including, you know, many thought that the uh, Iraqis had weapons of mass destruction. They did not. I think um, about half the population thought that Iraqis were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers on September 11th. Uh, I don't believe that was true. Um, And they also had thought, I think 60% thought that Saddam Hussein was an imminent threat to the United States national security after a deluge of propaganda um, And so propaganda is effective; it works really well. One of my favorite books, "Manufacturing Consent," I think it gave uh, opened up my eyes to kind of how media works. But uh, in Iraq, if you ask them, they could see through it. They knew exactly why the United States was there. Uh, we're talking about like ninety-nine percent of the population thought the United States was there to control their resources and oil rights, and maybe one percent thought that they were there for some messianic vision to, to spread. Uh, democracy or whatever, but I say this is my question though. Like, I'm all for human rights and, and a more humane whatever. I don't want war at all. I'd like to wipe it out completely. I definitely don't think nuclear war is a good idea. I think we should take the Non-Proliferation Agreement to nuclear weapons seriously. Um, but what about the what? What about the teeth? Or what about the binding? What about the enforcement of, of, of declarations like the international uh, or universal declarations of human rights? How can we Make sure that countries actually follow them and, and they don't target because it's illegal to target civilian installations. It's just never prosecuted really or bridges and infrastructure and food or when Clinton bombed a, um, a medicine, I think it was in the Sudan, I believe it was a medicine factory. Um, that killed a handful of people, but maybe 50,000 or more people that couldn't get um, medication for diseases and famine and, and that kind of stuff. That's illegal. That's a war crime. Did Did Clinton get prosecuted for the target of a medical manufacturing plant? No, of course not, because the United States is the most powerful country in the world, and international law doesn't really apply to someone of, of great power and influence like the, an American president. So what do you say about... I mean, we're all in favor, both of us sound like we're in favor of human rights and more humane war or maybe even no war. How could we be how could we make it more binding so that leaders of these countries like Putin, for example, he's a war criminal for invading the Ukraine. He's a kleptomaniac. How could we make these um, these proclamations like human rights and, and war crimes and declarations? How could we make them be more binding and how could we enforce them?
2: Well, I mean, it's just like any criminal code. You're going to have people breaking the law. It's just whether or not, like you said, how how will you then enforce? How will you prosecute? How will you punish? We don't have uh, the infrastructure yet. And I say yet because I do anticipate it might not be this century, right? This is way in, into the I would, probably sometime next century. Imagine a world where technology and infrastructure Matches the goals of universal global human rights, and what does that mean, and how does that look? Well, then just you have to look at the lessons of the past, and this is why history is such a useful vehicle in which we can recognize what 's worked, what hasn't worked, and then predict what could work in the future that's
0: the difference between history and political science. Are you an idealist? It sounds like you're an idealist and an optimist. I'm liking this though
2: i i mean i know i'm just, I'm certainly more realistic. The the difference would be, how has it actually functioned? How has things how have things worked previously? How have things not worked previously? Learning the lessons in the past, sometimes hard fought and uh, difficult lessons. So let's imagine a, a place in which there is no government. You've got feudal kings and lords and ladies and dukes and all the rest of it. And they're vying over a little patch of land that we might think of today. And it's just a little page in a history book somewhere. But they went through maybe centuries of conflict to figure out you know what between these two powers one of them is better we're going to end up supporting that group more so than the other one of them is stronger they might well not be great they might not even be good for everyone but they're stronger so maybe it's better that they just run things for a while and eventually you end up with these nation states these countries with governments who do okay they might not be the best of the ways that we might want to hope people would get on and function. But how are you going to secure or enforce the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the United Nations? You're probably not going to do it anytime soon because we don't have the technologies. The differences between what happened in the past and what we see now is that to dominate a small landmass, let's say Britain or uh, even france the 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 thirteen colonies that ended up being the states for the beginning of the u s smaller land mass requires less complicated ways to secure those territories, not easy, not simple, but less complicated Now you've got the whole world to try to secure you're talking about technologies that require monitoring that require. Uh, genuine oversight of political officials that are just holding them accountable. I mean, holding, holding, them, accountable. The I mean, holding yeah. them accountable. You know, right? Yeah. Uh, d- different systems of court and judicial structures where, if there is corruption, there's a way to get them out. Whether it's a democratic election, whether it's prosecutions and jails. We are we're just beginning to take note and take stock of how much it's going to need.
0: Let's go to current, current events here right yeah. now because you just – we sure. just, um, just thought of this here. Uh, what do you think about you – know you you're a little bit of an outsider. I mean I've lived my whole life here. Um, what do you see with the prosecution of Donald Trump? I think he's a criminal. I would like to see him behind bars, um, but I don't think he's all that much different than uh, – as Chomsky would put it. I mean every 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 president since Truman could be indicted by the Nuremberg Tribunal as a war criminal, so – I don't think he's done, maybe he's done things uh, domestically, you know, to meddle in a a U.S. Democratic election. Uh, But in general, I think the election is rigged. (laughs) I think both parties would rig an election if they knew they could get away with it and win. So that's all I see the Republicans doing it. They were just a little bit more brazen. But again, I do do think that uh, Trump is a criminal. I do think he belongs behind bars. As, you know, a little bit of an outsider, at least compared to me and living here my whole life and, and, you know, being indoctrinated and educated in this society and watching political elections since I can remember since, I don't know, six, eight. I don't remember. (laughs) I I, I remember uh, the first Bush and Clinton debating back in the, I guess that was the late 80s. That's the first election I can remember. Maybe that was early 90s, maybe 92, something along those lines. But uh, anyways, I'm going off. Here. What do you think about Trump, the prosecution of Trump, and where do, you, where do you see this going, and do you think he belongs in prison?
2: Well, like you say, there's there's all sorts of problems with politicians at the national level. Um, is he different? Yeah, he's different because he wasn't brought up in the cadre and the milieu, the groups. Right? He, he wasn't uh, an insider in the political sense, so it's not surprising he's being... Uh, prosecuted in these various ways. I don't know about the evidence, right? If, there's, if the evidence is strong enough to say that he's guilty of any of the charges, then sure, he should be held accountable. Whether he should just because he challenged political power, right? That's not really justice because you have to look at
0: the crime, you have to look at the evidence. So what about so him if- not being prosecuted while in office because i believe uh a president a sitting president has immunity do you think that's right should the president be literally above the law while they're in office
2: i don't yeah i don't i don't know if that's necessarily the way that it's written in terms of the law um i i
0: think that yeah, i i know that no charges were made until he was out of office and i heard a lot of legal experts yeah but you have an indictment one. Right?
2: Yeah, sure. But you you did you did have the 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 efforts to say that he's no longer a credible person to hold office
0: in terms of uh, Congress charging. So they do charge presidents. But that wasn't no, but that wasn't criminal. That wasn't they they can't be uh, they can't be charged with a crime. They can be barred from seeking office. um, But there was no uh, I guess there's no ability for Congress to levy some sort of penalty to put them behind bars so they could they could um impeach him and they did um but they couldn't kick him out of office but they couldn't charge him with a criminal crime with a crime and, and or put him behind bars that was I that, that right. can only be done once he's out of office at least i heard a lot of legal scholars say you know once once biden takes over look for uh the the You know, the Biden Justice Department to go after Trump. And I was skeptical. It's taken a few years, but they have I was very surprised I I, I see the way I see it. In the United States, there's two, two criminal justice systems, one for the rich and powerful and one for everybody else. So I'm okay with it. I I don't think Trump is all that much different than other presidents that have committed crimes, although they're going after him. But I I think that it's fine. I think it's a good thing that maybe they put Trump behind bars. I think the evidence seems to be there. I mean, I watched it with my own eyes. It certainly seemed like he was trying to undermine a quote unquote Democratic election. And I've I'm very critical of, you know, again, taking seven billion dollars to run for president or something like that. It's pretty much rigged by elites, you know, that kind of stuff. But sure, Trump is an outsider. But, um, yeah, do you think a president, a city president should be above the law or should they be charged with a crime just like any other, anyone else?
2: I mean, they, they, in terms of, like, the, the spirit of the law, as they say, no, no one should be above the law. It makes a mockery of the law. Uh, realistically, we all know there's lots of people that get away with all sorts of crimes Absolutely. because they have power and influence um it, it's 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 naive to say otherwise right yeah the the thing with uh the idea of yeah like you say criminal or criminal prosecution that's something that takes place once they're out of office um except in uh when when it's a political crime of some kind that's the difference right i, I still don't think that if someone is uh in power and they commit a crime that they should not and cannot be held accountable, right? I think it—the whole concept. I think it was in the one of the debates, right? Or maybe it was an interview previous to the 2016 election. He's like, you know, I could go to a street in New York and shoot someone, and they'd still vote for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I don't think you could actually. And and if you were president, I think you would also be arrested. And I hope that's not so, true,
0: right? I hope that's no, not Yeah.
2: True. So I think that the whole legal scholar stuff is part the 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 nuances of the game of politics and all of the rules that they bend and break ending up being crimes, political crimes, versus um, the, the 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 whole gamut of aspects of crime now it could be a process issue where they have to impeach first and then yes technically they're no longer right but the the effort would be yeah okay they they clearly yeah, the criminal. first step yeah get them right, out of office get then them you, out of office right, right, then right. they right, yeah so p- potentially that's one of the loopholes in which things have to be done um but yeah the the difference would uh, that we see here is that someone's uh it was after the civil war and construction were after reconstruction or during towards the end of reconstruction where you had the impeachment of a sitting president
0: Andrew and Robinson, i believe right
2: and then you also have bill clinton who was also technically impeached but then it didn't go through um yeah i think it's so, it
0: to go through two houses it's got to go through the house and yeah, the senate
2: yeah there you go and then you've also got um trump and then it also fell through when he was in, in the office. senate yeah
0: in the right. senate
2: precisely yeah, and then and you could still have, you know, the uh, Supreme Court throwing a wrench into the proceedings and slowing it down, or you know, there's right. all of these other technicalities of the checks and balances. Absolutely, supposed to hold the tyrant accountable if someone does reach the the office of president unjustly, um, and so yeah, I mean, Trump's. Uh, Lawsuits and criminal charges are, as we all can see, an effort to have him not in the game anymore.
0: That's, what an I, that's the way I see. It. I think they want to take him out of the game. I don't think yeah. he's going to go behind bars. I think they just right, want to make sure. And right now, if you're looking at the polls, that's a coin flip between Biden and Trump. It, you know, it's neck and yeah, neck. We're going so to get even, the same. We're going to get a replay right, of like 2020. Said, it looks like,
2: yeah, even even if there's like. The the dispute of him being in, in jail and behind bars. Um hey, we'll
0: look at a was, martyr. I mean I think he's people even are still gonna be putting him on the ticket, right? Absolutely. So this is the weird thing. He he it, said he something like, They're not going after me, they're going after you. <laughs> he's a martyr, at least that's what he wants to appear as. But that's that's literally he, some of the stuff I've been hearing him saying.
2: And it, and he's been looking to run since the nineteen eighties. Right. Yeah. So that yep. if you look, but ba- if you look back at the track record, he, he was looking for an opponent that he could take on and bully, and it happened to be Hillary Clinton. In the end of the day, yeah. it, it didn't work with Biden because of the crash in the economy and COVID. It wasn't yeah. because of Biden. It was because it wasn't. It was someone else other than Trump. So. Um.
0: You know. I think we, we got less than five minutes here. I think we could yeah. sit on here for 10 hours. Let me just read one quote because you had said something about um, you know defending land or property, a plot of land. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, very uh, left-leaning libertarian. Um, the, this is Jean-Jacques Rousseau on uh, inequality and democracy the first person who having enclosed a plot of land took it to took it into his head to say this is mine and simply found people to agree with him that was uh uh, okay lots of quote but anyways you know basically someone um you know basically said that this land is mine and actually he he actually convinced people to believe him that is where inequality and war and fighting um you know kind of kind of began with property. So, uh, I just have two questions for you. Yeah. What about wealth inequality and, uh, the, the need for land reform and, and the fact that a small percentage of the population owns, you know, most of the land. I mean, I think Bill Gates, uh, the billionaire has been on, on or near the top of the billionaire list for decades now. I think he's he owns more farmland in the United States than anyone else. Um, um and then and then the second thing the second question i have maybe a little bit unrelated but you know we're in a capitalist system where you know the rich people um are in control of the government that's again going back to a study by princeton in 2014 calling the u.s a oligarchy but what about the nation state generally i know it again when we scale up um organization organizing people uh there's a lot of conflict and that sort of thing uh the two questions I have for you, property and wealth inequality, what would you do about it or is it is this something that you don't haven't studied much or have much of an opinion on? And then secondly, the nation state, is it illegitimate? Should it exist, maybe in the short term or the long run? I'm more saying in the in the long run, I say no. I hope these nation states dissolve. I also want to dissolve and dismantle um, the government's ability to commit violence domestically. That would be the police or the National Guard against its citizens. And internationally, um, with the military in, in, in wars of aggression and imperialism. So what say you about property and its and, and the conflicts that, it, uh, that rise with it and wealth inequality and all that? And what say you of the nation state justice? Generally, it looks like we got less than four, four minutes to go. We could always go one more if we needed to, to finish up. Um, but do you want to, do you want to, you want to tackle those questions? Do you want to, do you want to go one more? I think we'll go 10 more minutes.
2: Uh, no, nah, no, I can't. I finish no. It up. Okay.
0: We got, you got, you got three right. minutes and then the stage is yours. <laughs> okay. You got three minutes. <laughs> go ahead and say whatever you want. Address my questions. If you want to plug, whatever you yep. want. And we're going to finish up here yep. in three minutes.
2: So, Property is really the key to freedom. Uh, I'm going to really push back on the idea of property being a foundation of inequality. There's going to be inequality. People are different. Uh, As soon as you have someone who is not identically the same as anyone else, you have inequality. That's all it means. In terms of justice, then, yes, we have lost the thread because the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most connected politically – are entirely adrift of the population and you could pick any country right i'd be very surprised maybe the kingdom of bhutan somewhere like that right? the king goes and has supper with the locals i don't know but it's like a tiny tiny plot in the rest of the world so there's a huge disconnect from the regular citizens and elites like we said many times and that has to change so the elites have to pay their fair share uh local politics is most crucial to this property is Significant in terms of people being able to uh, stop participating in these giant machines of oppression and exploitation. Take a little slice of the pie for yourself. Don't take too much. Share it amongst your friends and enjoy it. That's absolutely just and completely fair, especially if it's sustainable. When we look at the 90, issue of the seconds.
0: Nation- ninety seconds, ninety yeah,
2: seconds. Yeah, When we look at the issue of the na- nation-state, that's often where we're seeing a collapse, not just of empires, but of countries. Now you think of the U.S. in terms of cities and states, right? Texas and California, how they're going to swing things. Florida and New York, how they're going to swing things. The nation state, I think, is on its last legs. And it's going to change in in two different ways. We're going to see the supranational, like you're saying, with the EU or the African Union, a greater American union, I think, is on the cards at some point, but also then this different side, which is the local political side, where you just basically uh, use the technologies to interact with the world and the nation state. Yeah, but you're actually far more interested in how you're going to make your own community more effective, better, more just, more harmonious, not a, not a perfect place, but a better place. And... um and that, that really is the trajectory, because a lot of people have lost faith in national politics in all sorts of different countries. It used to be that politicians would be the experts. Previously to that, we might say it was uh, education and uh, pe- teachers. Now, more so scientists. But even then, people have lost a lot of faith in experts, and they're much more willing to just live their own lives in the local community. We're getting
0: cut off in five seconds, my man. Thanks so much. Right now. Take it easy. Have a great night. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. Take care. That's going to be another wrap on the Necessary Illusions podcast. Thanks for listening. Also, a thanks to my special guest, Christopher Harrison, political scientist, historian, and working-class academic. We had a great discussion, and I learned so much tonight. He was very generous with his time, so thank you very much. Again, I am your host, MC Squared, No gods, no masters. I'm out.